Hey, this is Olympic champion Scott Hamilton, the real Scott Hamilton, reminding you to listen to the other Scott Hamilton show every day right here on ESPN Charleston because he's nearly as smart as the real Scott Hamilton, just not as good looking. Just got the email that Spencer Rattler has been named the Southeastern Conference's co-offensive player of the week. And here's perhaps most encouraging. Offensive tackle Jalen Nichols named the conference's co-offensive lineman of the week. The offensive line in all this, I I put a lot of the success that Spencer Rattler had at the feet of the offensive lineman. Just the, the best the best effort collectively from the offensive line that we've seen in a few years. I'm, I'm going to throw that out there. Only one sack, a couple of pressures. But also the wide receivers did a good job blocking too, especially in the run game, out there on the perimeter helping make things happen and helping keep the defense stretched horizontally so that Rattler could then do his thing vertically. It was really a tremendous team effort. It's not something I saw coming. And I'll bet you dollars to donuts right now that our guest, he didn't see it either. But we're going to ask him. It's Ben Kerchival of CBS Sports. Ben, welcome aboard. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? I am well, Ben. Ben, did you see that coming? South Carolina's a 63-38 win over Tennessee. No. That's why you play the game. <laughs> it, shocking. I don't know if that's the appropriate word, Ben. I mean, I, I assume you watched the game. At what point did you say, oh, my God, this is actually happening. This isn't just uh, Tennessee with a slow start. Actually, I'll tell you when it happened is, is right around the time, uh, like three of those noon games got really funky. I said, this is just one of those days. It's just one of those days where if you're like a top five team, you're going to be on your heels. You get that about two times a season. And the moment that South Carolina got out of the gate hot, you go, okay. You know, it's a, Tennessee, come on down, baby. It's your turn. You know, you're going to have to go through the, the wheel of just total nonsense that week 12 is providing. Um, and, you know, you were breaking down a little bit what was making South Carolina's offense work. And from an X's and O's standpoint, you're right. Offensive line played great. You got just a great supporting, uh, you know, effort from all uh, everyone on your offense. But sometimes it just works. Sometimes you just you have a game and it clicks. Like Spencer Rattlers, his numbers have been okay this year. But when you go back to his time at Oklahoma – he, he obviously showed flashes, didn't work out, got replaced by Caleb Williams. But the arm talent's always been there. It's just sometimes everything's got to come together for him to make it happen. And, and Saturday was one of those nights, um, again, there, there are reasons specifically for it, but sometimes you can't just chalk it up to, man, they just they, they peaked. They had a game, and, uh, and they certainly did. I mean, what, what was it, nine touchdowns on like 11 possessions? I mean, like every time. And driving the field, too. These were not like 40-yard uh, possessions. These were like 60, 75-yard possessions, moving the ball consistently. That's very hard to do. Even if you're getting exposed to plays, it's hard to consistently move the ball and score every single time. you got to be pretty much perfect. And, uh, well, you chose a hell of a night to be perfect. <laughs> I agree with you on that, Ben. I'm, I'm wondering this, though. We look at Spencer Rattler's numbers, 30 for 37, 438 yards, six touchdowns. Also caught a 15-yard pass. That was pretty cool. But I don't know if that was the most impressive effort of the evening. 
I'm going to throw out there the effort of Marcus Satterfield, the uh, beleaguered offensive coordinator. Here's a guy who a lot of us are shocked still has that job right now or that at least he's in charge of calling plays, and he steps up and calls the game of his life under the uh, most intense microscope. Well, if you're going to play Tennessee, you can't, you can't be scared. And I think very early in the game, South Carolina established the fact that they were going to be aggressive, get the ball down the field. Uh, I think situational football is a real underrated part of, of play calling. You know, people can gripe all they want. They're like, well, they're not running the ball enough, or they're not doing this, not doing it. Situationally, you got to be really strong, too. And I thought South Carolina understood the moment understood the situation and established that presence very early on in the game, long before Hendon Hooker got hurt. And that was, uh, I think that was a real key too, because what, it's sort of that basketball analogy. Once you see the, once you see it go through the net, that confidence sort of builds up and it festers and uh, a really confident team is a hard team to beat. Yeah. That's, that's the biggest thing I'm thinking South Carolina will get out of this. The ceiling now. It's suddenly it's it, it's either broken through or you could say it's higher now. But either way, there's a lot of good things they can extract from this game. But Ben, I've got to be a little bit of a negative Nelly. I'm wondering this: how much of this offensive showing can we lay at the feet of Tennessee's defense, specifically its pass defense, one of the worst in the SEC? Yeah, it's it's not good. They've, people have been able to move the ball on them all year. Now, some of that again is is contextual. Tennessee scores like 50 points a game. <laughs> so other teams got to throw the ball a lot just to, to be able to catch up with them. So just I think naturally teams have to move the ball that way on them. The numbers are going to reflect that. But certainly teams all throughout the season have been able to do that. Um, but, again, I, I think when you look back at, at how South Carolina executed, Tennessee's pass defense isn't very good. But it's, it would be one thing if – you were like TCU or even like Tennessee where like every touchdown was a 50-yard bomb. And I'm not saying they didn't get explosive plays, but a lot of that is just consistent execution. And that's very hard, especially for college athletes. It's very hard to be able to continue to do over and over and over again just because at some point there's going to be a mess up. Um, there's just natural stops that occur even for, for teams that aren't very good defensively. So, um, now, I think it's a good question. Is that sustainable as you go up against Clemson, which has a very good defense? Uh, you know, this week is going to be a little bit of a different challenge. Can you sustain that two weeks in a row? We'll find out. But in terms of the execution of it, um, the way that they were able to beat Tennessee, I thought was, was very impressive because, again, you've got to be pretty darn near perfect, and they were. Ben, it's a fascinating juxtaposition when you think about it because now they're going to go up against this Tennessee team that does have a really, really, really good defense. By the way, held Miami to 98 yards in a 40-10 to 10 win over the weekend. But the yeah. flip side of that is that ain't Tennessee's offense they're going to see up at Death Valley on Saturday. That's going to be an offense led by DJU, and you never really know what you're going to get. Yeah, Clemson is – you know, there was a stretch earlier in the season where – and again, maybe it was the defense that they were playing. Like, like DJ Uyunglele played great against Wake Forest. Well, Wake Forest doesn't have very good defense, right? So, but over the course of, of two seasons, you know what we've seen from DJU is kind of, to me kind of what you're going to get. And the thing that I always kind of worry about with Clemson with him at quarterback is if he doesn't get out of the gate hot, if he makes some mistakes, you know, are they able to recover from that? Or is this just there a general feeling of like, okay, here, here we go again, and there's just not a lot of confidence in, in their ability to score consistently. And the other thing is, I think when he's playing, I, 
I, I'm, not, I'm really not trying to dog on him. I, I mean, I, I think he's a great, great person, and, and he's, he has a lot of physical ability. It just seems like the offense is playing in slow motion. And to be clear, it's not just him. I, I don't think they have the talent at wide receiver that they used to have, guys who can create real natural separation or win a ton of 50-50 balls. Their offensive line has, you know, really had some deficiencies over the past couple of years. And, look, Dabo Swinney likes to keep everything in-house. And there's something to be said for that. But also I think there comes a point where you can challenge the fact that they've been so insular uh, on their coaching staff or their fresh ideas that need to be brought in um, after losing Tony Elliott and Jeff Scott. And so I, I just think institutionally there are some, some problems there. Systemically there are some problems with Clemson's offense. And, and if, if, you know, their defense is going to get a lot of stops. I, I don't think you're going to be able to replicate what you did against Tennessee. But in terms of keeping the game lower scoring, if it's close, certainly I think you have a shot because there, there really can't be a lot of trust that Clemson's offense is going to get some absolutely huge plays when they need them. Ben, you bring up an interesting point. You, you mentioned about Dabo's um, tendency to keep things in the family, to keep things in the house. And for years and years, that was the thing that we applauded Nick Saban for, his ability to constantly bring in these new coaches. And, oh, man, they're winning, even though the coaching staff is turning over every year, when, in fact, that was actually to his benefit by bringing in new guys, bringing in new ideas, new voices, and helping them expand and evolve as the game expands and evolves the deeper we go into the 21st century. Yeah, I mean, Lane Kiffin was the perfect example of that. Now, I think there's, there might be some interesting choices to make at the end of this season, particularly with Bill O'Brien uh, at offensive coordinator. But, you know, he brings in Lane Kiffin, and Lane really is. Every coach thinks they're the smartest guy in the room. Lane might actually be. Um, he's just a tremendous offensive play caller. And when you, you give him the, the type of talent that, that Alabama has had over the past decade or so, um, at wide receiver, and then when they started bringing in real, you know, blue chip quarterbacks who could run and throw, um, you know, I, that was obviously a great hiring. You know, Sarkeesian, same thing. You know, these guys who at, at one point in their career were down bad, but Nick Saban knew, like, okay, the the, the Nick Saban coach rehabilitation tire care and bail bonds, you know, <laughs> emporium is is open for business, and he brings these guys in who know what they're doing, they just kind of hit a crossroads of their career. And, you know, he always talks about the process, and he, we always think about it in terms of players. But I think Wayne Kiffin is a great example of how the process can work for you as a coach. I think he's a different and better coach now than he's ever been because of, of how he went through that system. And, and you've got to believe in it, and, and, and there are a lot of examples of where it works. may not be so much the case this year, but that is a case where new ideas can come in and, and evolve and help you, and it's, it's worked to their benefit. And, and Davo, you know, he's, a, he's a, a great person in terms of trying to be able to promote from within, but it's, it's not a charity. It's, it's a winning college football program, and, and you got to do the right thing sometimes. Yeah, we're, we're huge fans of uh, Joey Freshwater here, Ben. Leave us. <laughs> we love us some Joey Freshwater, man. We're, we're joined by Ben Kerchival, CBS Sports. Follow him on Twitter at Ben Kerchival. Ben, just a couple more minutes, please. Uh, Hendon Hooker, torn ACL, gone for the year. Yeah. I, 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 tremendous season for Hendon Hooker. T- tremendous story. I remember watching him play in high school in Greensboro. He goes to Virginia Tech, and he just languishes under Justin Fuente. 
goes to Tennessee. Not even the starter last year, but Joe Milton's the starter. But Hendon Hooker, man, it was just a perfect marriage for him. I, I, I'm wondering this, Ben, how does this impact the Heisman Trophy race? Because I, we talk about guys splitting votes and this, that, and the other. Do you see – Maybe more guys now drifting towards a C.J. Stroud. Does this help a Blake Corum having one less quarterback in the mix? What What is your take? I, I mean, did you watch Caleb Williams on Saturday night? That's that's a big statement. Um, if I've seen one, and this has been a wide open race. I, Hooker has had the lead for for much of the season. I think that absolutely cooled after the Georgia game, um, but. You know, you can have a blip uh, on that type of run and still be able to go on and win the Heisman. Obviously, it's probably over for him. Now, I think he should still get an invite to New York. I mean, he, he's been outstanding this whole year. I think he, he deserves it. Um, but to me, when you have a wide-open race like this, what you do at the end of the season matters. I think Caleb Williams certainly has an opportunity to do that. You mentioned Blake Horan. We'll see. I mean, he's, he got banged up in that Illinois game. He's really been carrying the load of that offense uh, for much of the season. I, I don't know that he's going to be as effective down the stretch. A lot of times it really just is how healthy are you, how well are you playing You know, in, in late November, maybe early December. That, that might decide it this year. You know, a couple of things, Ben, before we let you go. The, the Heisman people are so fickle when it comes to how many people they're, they're having come as finalists. I've seen seven, I've seen five, you know, three is usually the number. So I, I'm thinking it'll be a higher number this year in order to accommodate Hendon Hooker. Uh, two, regarding Blake Corum, I, I see a performance like that against Illinois, and he still had a pretty solid game. I yeah. think that I think that actually might help him because people who vote for the Heisman, a lot of them, they love nostalgia, and that kind of performance is, is about as old school as you can get in 2022. It, it is now. I, I, you know, you get three slots, you know, on on the Heisman vote, and so I, you know, I, I think that should just expand in general because I like inviting these players to New York so you can get to know them. You know, they've had these tremendous seasons. Get to know them a little bit more, highlight their accomplishments. But for, for Quorum, again, we'll bang up. We'll see if he practices this week. Well, I, I certainly think he'll he'll try to play against Ohio State. It's the biggest game of the year for them. Um, if he's able to come through, the way I think it works for him is I, I don't know that J.J. McCarthy is the guy who can put that team on his shoulders and really make the plays necessary in order to win. Um, you know, he, he did okay against Illinois, but clearly that offense runs through Quorum. I don't know that they have the running back depth behind him just so easily replace him like Ohio State. Ohio State's on like their 10th running back, and they're just at, like each one's getting like 150 yards a game. So clearly, what Corum means to Michigan, I, I think, certainly says about his, uh, says a lot about his Heisman chances. But you know, he's going to have to maybe you know grin and bear it through this Ohio State game and the Big Ten championship in the next couple of weeks if he's going to win it. I'll leave you with this thought, Ben: Heisman moments, and it is set up perfectly for him to have a Heisman moment on Saturday. Yeah. We don't yeah, get those absolutely. much anymore. I mean, name me name me a Heisman moment from a recent winner. Well, how, how recent do you want? I mean, Johnny Manziel is against Alabama. I mean, Ten I years think ago. he spun around. You know, that's that's one off the top of my head. Um, Lamar Jackson I mean, I, in September against Syracuse. Yeah, Lamar. Yeah, Lamar Jackson. I mean, it's it's you you get them. Sometimes you don't always know them in the moment, but you get them. I like it. He's Ben Kerchival, CBS Sports. Follow him on Twitter at Ben Kerchival. Ben, you are the man, brother. Appreciate you coming on today. All right, Scott. Take care, bud. All righty, it's Ben Kerchival. 
CBS Sports hopping aboard the Saitama Hotline. Yeah, you, you get the Heisman moment. We just can't always identify it at that moment. We can't always say, oh, that's it, like Doug Flutie throwing the Hail Mary in 1984. Or Desmond Howard. Desmond Howard with the punt return against Ohio State, and then he literally does the Heisman pose in the end zone. Those were obvious. Some of them not so obvious. Blake Corum, though, if he goes out and he has a game and he puts the team on his back and he gets 100-plus yards and scores a couple of touchdowns, especially if there's a long run that seals it at the end or keeps on a third down or something. That could, that could do it. I really believe it. I think there's a part of the voting, the voting body, the electorate, for the Heisman Trophy that would say, God, that's just old school. We love it. I'm putting him number one on my ballot. Can't say I will or can't say I won't. Again, those Heisman people snatch away my vote. You're listening to the Scott Hamilton Show, ESPN Charleston. Brandy wears a braided chain made of finest silver.